Chapter One of The Warlord of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson. The Warlord of Mars. Chapter One On the River Is. In the shadows of the forest that flanks the crimson plain by the side of the lost Sea of Chorus in the Valley Door, beneath the hurtling moons of Mars, speeding their meteoric way close above the bosom of the dying planet, I crept stealthily along the trail of a shadowy form that hugged the darker places with a persistency that proclaimed the sinister nature of its errand. For six long Martian months I had haunted the vicinity of the hateful Temple of the Sun, within whose slow-revolving shaft, far beneath the surface of Mars, my princess lay entombed, but whether alive or dead I knew not. Had Fedor's slim blade found that beloved heart, time only would reveal the truth. Six hundred and eighty-seven Martian days must come and go before the cell's door would again come opposite the tunnel's end, where last I had seen my ever-beautiful Dejah Thoris. Half of them had passed, or would on the morrow, yet vivid in my memory, obliterating every event that had come before or after, there remained the last scene before the gust of smoke blinded my eyes, and the narrow slit that had given me sight of the interior of her cell closed between me and the Princess of Helium for a long Martian year. As if it were yesterday, I still saw the beautiful face of Fedor, daughter of Matai Shang distorted with jealous rage and hatred, as she sprang forward with raised dagger upon the woman I loved. I saw the red girl, Thuvia of Tarth, leap forward to prevent the hideous deed. The smoke from the burning temple had come then to blot out the tragedy, but in my ears rang the single shriek as the knife fell. Then silence, and when the smoke had cleared, the revolving temple had shut off all sight or sound from the chamber in which the three beautiful women were imprisoned. Much there had been to occupy my attention since that terrible moment, but never for an instant had the memory of the thing faded, and all the time that I could spare from the numerous duties that had devolved upon me in the reconstruction of the government of the firstborn since our victorious fleet and land forces had overwhelmed them had been spent close to the grim shaft that held the mother of my boy, Carthoris of Helium. The race of blacks that for ages had worshipped Issus, the false deity of Mars, had been left in a state of chaos by my revealment of her as not more than a wicked old woman. In their rage they had torn her to pieces. From the high pinnacle of their egotism the firstborn had been plunged to the depths of humiliation. Their deity was gone, and with her the whole false fabric of their religion. Their vaunted navy had fallen in defeat before the superior ships and fighting men of the Red Men of Helium. Fierce green warriors from the ochre sea-bottoms of outer Mars had ridden their wild thoats across the sacred gardens of the Temple of Issus, and Tars Tarkas, Jeddak of Thark, fiercest of them all, had sat upon the throne of Issus and ruled the firstborn while the allies were deciding the conquered nation's fate. Almost unanimous was the request that I ascend the ancient throne of the black men, even the firstborn themselves concurring in it, but I would have none of it. My heart could never be with the race that had heaped indignities upon my princess and my son. At my suggestion Zodar became Jeddak of the firstborn. 
he had been a dator or prince until Issus had degraded him, so that his fitness for the high office bestowed was unquestioned. The peace of the valley door thus assured, the green warriors dispersed to their desolate sea-bottoms, while we of Helium returned to our own country. Here again was a throne offered me, since no word had been received from the missing Jeddak of Helium, Tardos Mors, grandfather of Dejah Thoris, or his son, Mors Kajak, Jed of Helium, her father. Over a year had elapsed since they had set out to explore the northern hemisphere in search of Carthoris, and at last their disheartened people had accepted as truth the vague rumors of their death that had filtered in from the frozen region of the Pole. Once again I refused a throne, for I would not believe that the mighty Tardos Mors or his no less redoubtable son was dead. Let one of their own blood rule you until they return, I said to the assembled nobles of Helium, as I addressed them from the pedestal of truth beside the throne of righteousness, in the temple of reward, from the very spot where I stood a year before when Zat Aris pronounced the sentence of death upon me. As I spoke, I stepped forward and laid my hand upon the shoulder of Carthoris, where he stood in the front rank of the circle of nobles about me. As one, the nobles and the people lifted their voices in a long cheer of approbation. Ten thousand swords sprang on high from as many scabbards, and the glorious fighting men of ancient Helium hailed Carthoris, Jeddak of Helium. His tenure of office was to be for life or until his great-grandfather or grandfather should return. Having thus satisfactorily arranged this important duty for Helium, I started the following day for the valley door that I might remain close to the Temple of the Sun until the fateful day that should see the opening of the prison cell where my lost love lay buried. Horvastus and Cantos Can, with my other noble lieutenants, I left with Carthoris at Helium, that he might have the benefit of their wisdom, bravery, and loyalty in the performance of the arduous duties which had devolved upon him. Only Wula, my Martian hound, accompanied me. At my heels tonight, the faithful beast moved softly in my tracks. As large as a Shetland pony, with hideous head and frightful fangs, he was indeed an awesome spectacle, as he crept after me on his ten short muscular legs. But to me he was the embodiment of love and loyalty. The figure ahead was that of the black dator of the firstborn, Thurid, whose undying enmity I had earned that time I laid him low with my bare hands in the courtyard of the Temple of Issus, and bound him with his own harness before the noble men and women who had but a moment before been extolling his prowess. Like many of his fellows, he had apparently accepted the new order of things with good grace, and had sworn fealty to Zodar, his new ruler. But I knew that he hated me, and I was sure that in his heart he envied and hated Zodar so I had kept a watch upon his comings and goings. To the end that of late I had been convinced that he was occupied with some manner of intrigue. Several times I had observed him leaving the walled city of the firstborn after dark, taking his way out into the cruel and horrible valley door, where no honest business could lead any man. Tonight he moved quickly along the edge of the forest until well beyond sight or sound of the city. Then he turned across the crimson sward toward the shore of the lost sea of Chorus. The rays of the nearer moon, swinging low across the valley, touched his jewel-encrusted harness with a thousand changing lights, and glanced from the glossy ebony of his smooth hide. 
twice he turned his head back toward the forest, after the manner of one who was upon an evil errand, though he must have felt quite safe from pursuit. I did not dare follow him there beneath the moonlight, since it best suited my plans not to interrupt his. I wished him to reach his destination unsuspecting, that I might learn just where that destination lay and the business that awaited the night prouder there. So it was that I remained hidden until after Thurid had disappeared over the edge of the steep bank beside the sea a quarter of a mile away. Then, with Woola following, I hastened across the open after the black dator. The quiet of the tomb lay upon the mysterious valley of death, crouching deep in its warm nest within the sunken area at the south pole of the dying planet. In the far distance the golden cliffs raised their mighty barrier faces far into the starlit heavens, their precious metals and scintillating jewels that composed them sparkling in the brilliant light of Mars's two gorgeous moons. At my back was the forest, pruned and trimmed like the sward to park-like symmetry by the browsing of the ghoulish plant-men. Before me lay the lost sea of Chorus, while farther on I caught the shimmering ribbon of Is, the river of mystery, where it wound out from beneath the golden cliffs to empty into Chorus, to which for countless ages had been borne the deluded and unhappy Martians of the outer world upon the voluntary pilgrimage to this false heaven. The plant-men, with their blood-sucking hands, and the monstrous white apes that make door hideous by day, were hidden in their lairs for the night. There was no longer a holy thern upon the balcony in the golden cliffs above the Iss to summon them with weird cry to the victims floating down to their maws upon the cold, broad bosom of ancient Iss. The navies of Helium and the Firstborn had cleared the fortresses and temples of the Therns when they had refused to surrender and accept the new order of things that had swept their false religion from long-suffering Mars. In a few isolated countries they still retained their age-old power, but Matai Shang, their Hecador, father of Therns, had been driven from his temple. Strenuous had been our endeavors to capture him, but with a few of the faithful he had escaped and was in hiding, where we knew not. As I came cautiously to the edge of the low cliff overlooking the lost sea of Chorus, I saw Thurid pushing out upon the bosom of the shimmering water in a small skiff, one of those strangely wrought craft of unthinkable age which the holy therns, with their organization of priests and lesser therns, were wont to distribute along the banks of the Iss, that the long journey of their victims might be facilitated. Drawn up on the beach below me were a score of similar boats, each with its long pole, at one end of which was a pike, at the other a paddle. Thurid was hugging the shore, and as he passed out of sight round a nearby promontory, I shoved one of the boats into the water and, calling Woola into it, pushed out from shore. The pursuit of Thurid carried me along the edge of the sea toward the mouth of the Iss. The farther moon lay close to the horizon casting a dense shadow beneath the cliffs that fringed the water. Thuria, the nearer moon, had set, nor would it rise again for near four hours, so that I was ensured concealing darkness for that length of time at least. On and on went the black warrior. Now he was opposite the mouth of the Iss. Without an instant's hesitation he turned up the grim river, paddling hard against the strong current. After him came Woola and I, closer now, 
for the man was too intent upon forcing his craft up the river to have any eyes for what might be transpiring behind him. He hugged the shore where the current was less strong. Presently he came to the dark cavernous portal in the face of the golden cliffs through which the river poured. On into the Stygian darkness beyond he urged his craft. It seemed hopeless to attempt to follow him here where I could not see my hand before my face, and I was almost on the point of giving up the pursuit and drifting back to the mouth of the river, there to await his return, when a sudden bend showed a faint luminosity ahead. My quarry was plainly visible again, and in the increasing light from the phosphorescent rock that lay embedded in great patches in the roughly arched roof of the cavern, I had no difficulty in following him. It was my first trip upon the bosom of Is, and the things I saw there will live forever in my memory. Terrible as they were, they could not have commenced to approximate the horrible conditions which must have obtained before Tars Tarkas, the great green warrior, Zodar the Black Dator, and I, brought the light of truth to the outer world and stopped the mad rush of millions upon the voluntary pilgrimage to what they believed would end in a beautiful valley of peace and happiness and love. Even now the low islands which dotted the broad stream were choked with the skeletons and half-devoured carcasses of those who, through fear or a sudden awakening to the truth, had halted almost at the completion of their journey. In the awful stench of these frightful charnel isles, haggard maniacs screamed and gibbered and fought among the torn remnants of their grisly feasts, while on those which contained but clean-picked bones they battled with one another, the weaker furnishing sustenance for the stronger, or with claw-like hands clutched at the bloated bodies that drifted down with the current. Thurid paid not the slightest attention to the screaming things that either menaced or pleaded with him as the mood directed them. Evidently he was familiar with the horrid sights that surrounded him. He continued up the river for perhaps a mile, and then, crossing over to the left bank, drew his craft up on a low ledge that lay almost on a level with the water. I dared not follow across the stream, for he most surely would have seen me. Instead, I stopped close to the opposite wall beneath an overhanging mass of rock that cast a dense shadow beneath it. Here I could watch Thurid without danger of discovery. The black was standing upon the ledge beside his boat, looking up the river as though he were awaiting one whom he expected from that direction. As I lay there beneath the dark rocks I noticed that a strong current seemed to flow directly toward the center of the river, so that it was difficult to hold my craft in its position. I edged farther into the shadows, that I might find a hold upon the bank but, though I proceeded several yards, I touched nothing. And then, finding that I would soon reach a point from where I could no longer see the black man, I was compelled to remain where I was, holding my position as best I could by paddling strongly against the current, which flowed from beneath the rocky mass behind me. I could not imagine what might cause this strong lateral flow, for the main channel of the river was plainly visible to me from where I sat and I could see the rippling junction of it and the mysterious current which had aroused my curiosity. While I was still speculating upon the phenomenon, my attention was suddenly riveted upon Thurid, who had raised both palms forward above his head in the universal salute of Martians, and a moment later his Keor, the Barsoomian word of greeting, came in low but distinct tones. I turned my eyes up the river in the direction that his were bent, 
and presently there came within my limited range of vision a long boat, in which were six men. Five were at the paddles, while the sixth sat in the seat of honour. The white skins, the flowing yellow wigs which covered their bald pates, and the gorgeous diadems set in circlets of gold about their heads marked them as holy therns. As they drew up beside the ledge upon which Thurid awaited them, he in the bow of the boat arose to step ashore, and then I saw that it was none other than Matai Shang, father of therns. The evident cordiality with which the two men exchanged greetings filled me with wonder, for the black and white men of Barsoom were hereditary enemies, nor ever before had I known of two meeting other than in battle. Evidently the reverses that had recently overtaken both peoples had resulted in an alliance between these two individuals, at least against the common enemy, and now I saw why Thurid had come so often out into the valley door by night, and that the nature of his conspiring might be such as to strike very close to me or to my friends. I wish that I might have found a point closer to the two men from which to have heard their conversation, but it was out of the question now to attempt to cross the river. And so I lay quietly watching them, who would have given so much to have known how close I lay to them, and how easily they might have overcome and killed me with their superior force. Several times Thurid pointed across the river in my direction, but that his gestures had any reference to me I did not for a moment believe. Presently he and Matai Shang entered the latter's boat, which turned out into the river and, swinging around, forged steadily across in my direction. As they advanced I moved my boat farther and farther in beneath the overhanging wall, but at last it became evident that their craft was holding the same course. The five paddlers sent the larger boat ahead at a speed that taxed my energies to equal. Every instant I expected to feel my prow crash against solid rock. The light from the river was no longer visible, but ahead I saw the faint tinge of a distant radiance, and still the water before me was open. At last the truth dawned upon me. I was following a subterranean river which emptied into the Iss at the very point where I had hidden. The rowers were now quite close to me. The noise of their own paddles drowned the sound of mine, but in another instant the growing light ahead would reveal me to them. There was no time to be lost. Whatever action I was to take must be taken at once. Swinging the prow of my boat toward the right, I sought the river's rocky side, and there I lay while Matai Shang and Thurid approached up the center of the stream, which was much narrower than the Iss. As they came nearer, I heard the voices of Thurid and the father of Thurns raised in argument. "'I tell you, Thurn,' the black Dator was saying, "'that I wish only vengeance upon John Carter, Prince of Helium. I am leading you into no trap. What could I gain by betraying you to those who have ruined my nation and my house?' "'Let us stop here a moment, that I may hear your plans,' replied the Hecador, "'and then we may proceed with a better understanding of our duties and obligations.' To the rowers he issued the command that brought their boat in toward the bank not a dozen paces beyond the spot where I lay. Had they pulled in below me they must surely have seen me against the faint glow of light ahead, but from where they finally came to rest I was as secure from detection as though miles separated us. The few words I had already overheard whetted my curiosity, and I was anxious to learn what manner of vengeance Thurid was planning against me nor had I long to wait.
I listened intently. "'There are no obligations, father of Thurns,' continued the firstborn. "'Thurid, dator of Issus, has no price. When the thing has been accomplished, I shall be glad if you will see to it that I am well received, as is befitting my ancient lineage and noble rank, at some court that is yet loyal to thy ancient faith, for I cannot return to the valley door or elsewhere within the power of the Prince of Helium. But even that I do not demand. It shall be as your own desire in the matter directs." "'It shall be as you wish, Dator,' replied Natai Sheng. "'Nor is that all. Power and riches shall be yours if you restore my daughter Fedor to me, and place within my power Dejah Thoris, Princess of Helium.' "'Ah,' he continued with a malicious snarl, "'but the earthman shall suffer for the indignities he has put upon the Holy of Holies, nor shall any vileness be too vile to inflict upon his princess. Would that it were in my power to force him to witness the humiliation and degradation of the red woman! "'You shall have your way with her before another day has passed, Matai Shang,' said Thurid, "'if you but say the word.' "'I have heard of the Temple of the Sun, Dator,' replied Matai Shang but never have I heard that its prisoners could be released before the allotted year of their incarceration had elapsed. How, then, may you accomplish the impossible?" "'Access may be had to any cell of the temple at any time,' replied Thurid. Only Issus knew this, nor was it ever Issus' way to divulge more of her secrets than were necessary. By chance, after her death, I came upon an ancient plan of the temple, and there I found plainly writ, the most minute directions for reaching the cells at any time. And more I learned, that many men had gone thither for Issus in the past, always on errands of death and torture to the prisoners, but those who thus learned the secret way were wont to die mysteriously immediately they had returned and made their reports to cruel Issus. "'Let us proceed, then,' said Matai Shang at last. "'I must trust you.' Yet, at the same time, you must trust me, for we are six to your one." "'I do not fear,' replied Thurid, "'nor need you. Our hatred of the common enemy is sufficient bond to ensure our loyalty to each other, and after we have defiled the Princess of Helium there will be still greater reason for the maintenance of our allegiance, unless I greatly mistake the temper of her lord.' Matai Sheng spoke to the paddlers. The boat moved on up the tributary. It was with difficulty that I restrained myself from rushing upon them and slaying the two vile plotters, but quickly I saw the mad rashness of such an act, which would cut down the only man who could lead the way to Dejah Thor's prison before the long Martian year had swung its interminable circle. If he should lead Matai Sheng to that hollowed spot, then too should he lead John Carter, Prince of Helium. With silent paddle I swung slowly into the wake of the larger craft. End of chapter 1